So thank you for joining us today uh, for a podcast on uh, thyroid function and interpreting thyroid function and hypo and hypothyroidism in the context of immunotherapy. Um, I'm joined again today by Anna. Anna, thank you for joining. Very welcome, Ricky. It's great to be back. It is indeed. Um, so, look, Anna, let's start by talking about um, maybe hypothyroidism. So, you know, in my experience, this is the most common endocrinopathy I see. Um, uh, interesting, a little bit like we did with the um, with hyperadrenalism or low cortisols for those who are listening in order. When are you checking thyroid function? Are you doing it with every cycle? Are you doing it before they start? You know, what's your uh, your practice? So yeah, so we are. So we we do it at baseline, and then we do it before every every cycle of immunotherapy. Um, I think thyroid is probably the least symptomatic of all of the endocrinopathies. Actually, um, I, I've had patients who have had you know T fours of of one painting their ceiling and sort of asking why I want them to come in to to get some replacement and things. So I think they are they are very very um, hard to detect clinically um, they have to be quite symptomatic and quite extreme and in sort of the more sort of severe end of the, of the spectrum to really pick them up so we do um, thyroid function tests with every every cycle of treatment uh, and we act on the biochemical findings as opposed to waiting for them to develop symptoms um, and and that sort of has been our standard practice for for a long while and I think it's been quite interesting because it's meant that we can actually understand what happens um, with the biochemical profile in a bit more detail so I find it really interesting that you say that you know hypothyroidism is the most common thing that you you see and and certainly it's the most common thing that we need to action but we did a we did a review of our patients um fairly early in the in sort of in the the, the immunotherapy journey to look at the pattern of thyroid function tests over the course of treatment and by by doing them pre-cycle we could do that relatively easily. And what we actually found was really interesting because all of the trials say that the highest, the highest sort of thyroid toxicity is hypothyroidism. But actually, if you track it over time, most patients will go through a hyperthyroid phase before they become hypothyroid. Um, and actually looking at the numbers in our cohort, it was looking at sort of a 75%, 25% split. So if you track it over time, they become hyperthyroid with a high T4 and a low T TSH. And then they will track through that over a period of days, sometimes into weeks. Um, and then they will go back to being normal and new thyroid. And then they will become hypothyroid. Um, everybody that went hyperthyroid became hypothyroid in that group. Um, although I have had the odd one that hasn't gone to hypothyroidism. We'll probably talk about them in a little while. But the vast majority of people that we actually treat as hypothyroid will have almost certainly gone through a hyperthyroid phase. Um, and I think that was actually really interesting and helpful for us to understand, because sometimes a patient will go into um, a GP or go into uh, another healthcare setting. They'll have a really high T4 and then everybody will treat them as if they've got hyperthyroidism that needs long term treatment. Where actually, if you track it for another week or so, they will actually become hypothyroid. And it's only really at that point that they need treatment. And then then, yeah, we've got hypothyroid treatment for the for the long term. That's really interesting, Anna, because, I mean, um, 
in terms of that that hyperthyroidism you know you're absolutely right that it's talked about but it's interesting and and it's not something i had i had ever really thought about or realized that you know i i always in my mind had the hyperthyroid bit and then a few weeks later it burns itself out but actually i think what you're saying is really interesting is is that probably more people are transiently going through the hyperthyroid phase and becoming hypothyroid and maybe part of that issue is that with some of our treatments that are six weekly we're almost missing that that hyperthyroid phase is is that in essence what the audience should be taking away yeah definitely so because we did when we did our study we were we were treating two and three weekly so that is one thing that we did pick up um so yes absolutely you can definitely go from being euthyroid to hypothyroid having been hyperthyroid in a six-week period in fact the majority are so you're so you're absolutely right yes you you can and you may you may not see it um but it's interesting if you then take a history retrospectively some people will say you know i was a bit sweaty and a bit had a few palpitations about halfway through the cycle um and that's probably what it is um it's just that it's not been captured biochemically but yeah we definitely see this hyper hypo pattern um that, that can and it and it does change very quickly i think that's the other really interesting learning point that myself and my endocrinology colleagues have sort of learned together is that the the thyroid function test can change very quickly which is very unlike autoimmune hypothyroidism where things don't change very quickly at all so endocrinologists quite often say there's absolutely no point in checking um thyroid function any more than you know six or eight weekly because nothing will have changed and we absolutely know that for our patients probably because you're getting direct glandular destruction that absolutely isn't the case and you will see things so if you've got somebody who's borderline hyper I would always be tempted to, to think about checking that sort of two to three weeks later rather than waiting a full six weeks, because the chances are they will have become hypo at that point and then they will need replacement. Right. And then there's often the thorny issue. Um, certainly I found it thorny when I started treating um, thyroid dysfunction of um, some colleagues who are less familiar when they develop that hyperthyroid phase will will advocate for things like carbimazole and and I, I you know I had a number of difficult conversations at the start of the journey. Um, just talk us through that, Anna, from you know in terms of how you manage hyperthyroidism. My, my personal practice is you know unless they're symptomatic. I, I don't do anything as a rule. And if they are symptomatic, it's normally a beta blocker like propanolol to manage those those symptoms. But I tend not to use carbimazole. I wonder what your practice is. Exactly the same, partly because of the fact that we, we, we did sort of map quite a lot of them. So we kind of became fairly, became fairly confident that most people will start turning the tide relatively soon. So I don't tend to use carbamazole. I don't find it helpful. Um, and actually what you end up with is a bit of a situation where their thyroid function starts dropping and then you don't know if that's the carbamazole or that's what they would do normally. And we know that most people will do that normally. So what I tend to do is if they're in the hyperthyroid phase, I will monitor that for a period of time. I absolutely agree. If they're symptomatic, then I would give them a beta blocker. Um, I tend to find people are only symptomatic if they've got a T4 of sort of more than 60 or more commonly more than 80, which is really, really high levels and, and quite surprising that that's the sort of level you need to get to before they're having symptoms. But that for our patient cohort seems to be the case. And I, get, I think, again, it's probably because it's quite transient. It doesn't stay that high for that long. So you don't get the sort of the consistent sort of stimulation that you would do if you had a persistently high T4 of sort of 60 or 70. 
but I agree. So I would give them a beta blocker for a, for a week or two. I then recheck their thyroid function. If they are staying persistently hyperthyroid and they look like a small, the, the very small group of people who are who are genuinely going to stay hyperthyroid, probably because they've stimulated a you know a pre-existing pathway, then at that point, yes, you can think about using carbamazole. But I don't do it as standard practice because you don't need it. And then you're in this situation of, well, do I stop it? How long do I carry on for? What dose should I use? There's loads of questions. And actually, it's a, it's just not needed because they will nearly always correct themselves and then eventually become hypothyroid. So I, I don't use it. I think the other thing that we're often asked about is do we use steroids in this case? And again, it's difficult because obviously we, we sort of we put our hands towards steroids for most things in um, in immune related adverse events. But with thyroid particularly, we haven't seen any evidence that giving steroids terminates the loss of the function. Because I think that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to prevent somebody becoming permanently hypothyroid. Now, whether it's because we don't detect it early enough. So actually the glandular disruption has already happened. And so you can't reverse it because it's already happened or not. And whether actually if you, if you had a mechanism by detecting it early, you might get some benefit from steroid. We don't know. But certainly in our patient group, steroids didn't didn't prevent the, the sort of the production of a hypothyroid status so we don't use steroids in, in these patients at all and um, we just accept that once they become hyper they were likely to become hypo and that will probably be persistent yeah i mean the, the, so my practice is the same I, I guess the one group where i do use steroids which is a specific group is the patients that I check their adrenal function at the same time and find it to be low and I guess that's one of the learning points that again I learned the hard way is that it's really important not to precipitate a, a crisis in a patient um, and so my my particular practice is that you know Thyroid isn't something that I worry a great deal about in terms of, like you say, people can have profound hypothyroidism and often be quite well. And so I routinely will check a 9am cortisol uh, before I replace the, the thyroid hormone to make sure that I don't precipitate an adrenal crisis. I, I wondered what, what your practice is around that and, and how you do it in in real life with the, the busyness and the, the need to, to kind of manage these patients absolutely so again so we do always we we don't focus on the 9am element of a cortisol in that setting either um so um as i said in the previous podcast we we tend to be happy with a random cortisol and then i've got sort of a uh, an algorithm that allows us to interpret that but we would always check a cortisol with the thyroid function i completely agree um and i think actually one of those um learning points that we sort of remember from medical school and then forget as we we kind of get further into our sort of oncology training is the fact that you can precipitate a crisis if you've replaced the thyroid function first so absolutely we we would we would check both and replace the cortisol first if they if they were um for any reason um hyperadrenal um so i think it's really important for us to make sure we're doing that and again that's why we do an endocrine group so it's just it's just so that we've definitely know where we're up to before we start um replacement i think the other the other question is always about how much levothyroxine do you use i'd be interested to know what your practice is with that yeah so so our practice down in cardiff we tend to start with 50 micrograms of levothyroxine um is that's our normal starting dose 
Um, sometimes if patients are very old or they've got um, heart problems, we will sometimes go with a lower dose and that would be 25. But 50 is a is a standard dose for us. And if someone has got a very um, high TSH level, sometimes we do start with, with 75 micrograms and then recheck it relatively quickly. We're, we're always taught to check it sort of six weeks later. But in somebody who's, who's profoundly hypothyroid, we'll often check it after two or four weeks and see if we can start to titrate the dose. So my standard is to start with 50 micrograms. Um, and sometimes the, the only patients I would go lower are those who are very frail or, or have got concomitant heart problems. Interesting on how you approach it, Anna. Yeah, very similarly. I think one of the things that I found quite interesting about this group is they don't tend to need particularly high doses of replacement. So um, there are some people that sort of end up on sort of 125, 150 micrograms of levothyroxine, but the majority tend to be relatively well replaced on sort of 50 to 75 micrograms and so I absolutely agree I wouldn't generally unless there was particular circumstances I wouldn't generally start higher than 50 because they don't seem to need it for some reason and I'm not sure we necessarily can explain why at the moment but that certainly seems to be the case so yeah we start at 50 and then as you were alluding to track their TSH which is um, which is always quite an interesting conversation and my, my nursing teams are always quite rightly sort of saying I, thyroid function ah <laughs> which direction does what go in so I think it's it's really interesting but yes yeah, so it's always sort of that key of tracking the TSH and making sure that's in the normal range um sort of slightly less worried about the T4 on its own so I think that's that's the other learning point is just sort of remembering these things that we did not want to know it and remembering and using them again isn't it but yeah we we, we start on the same dose and we track the TSH um how regularly do you check them once you've started them yeah, so so we tend to do it with each cycle. So um, we we yeah we we don't really change our our follow up regime of the thyroid function. We just do it as as routine with, with each cycle as we were doing um, doing previously. Is that similar? Yeah, it is. And, and I'd be interested to know. Do you do you ask your um, patients, general practitioner, to carry on the prescription of levothyroxine? How does that work for you guys? Yeah, no, we do. So we will give them the the prescription and then ask the GP, the general practitioners carried on. I mean, that that can have challenges with, I'm guessing, the capacity that general practice has and, you know, the, the communication, which is something we're not going to sort out in a podcast. Um, but yeah, but as a routine, I do. And I guess just a point that you made earlier and just for the audience. So um, Anna made a, a really important point about the fact these patients often need a slightly lower dose. Just as a reference point, um, you know, in terms of hypothyroidism from other causes, often 1.6 uh, milligrams per kilogram is often the dose that patients need for replacement and if we think about patients being about 80 kilograms you'd expect patients to need sort of 125 of levothyroxine and as Anna's made the point really nicely that actually for whatever reason and we don't really know patients don't often need those kind of doses. Um, Anna, I, I, I wanted to ask you Anna about um, the, the role of antibodies in thyroids you know I, again it's it's an area that 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 stress that we experience i think all of us um uh, experience around what antibodies to do when to do them how to interpret them is there a is there a simple guide um for for when to do them and and a, a very simple guide for how you're going to use them to guide practice so i think i think it's very it's a very interesting point um, in as much as i actually we actually don't test thyroid antibodies routinely now so we did 
Um, so one of the, the only area I tend to use thyroid autoantibodies in is if I've got a patient who's having baseline bloods done and they have got a thyroid abnormality prior to starting treatment. And I want to understand what, what's going on there and what, what might be driving that. And if that's an autoantibody driven um, situation, because we do know that quite a lot of people with endocrinopathies, autoimmune endocrinopathies, are sub have subclinical presentations for a long time. So we do uncover quite a number of people who've actually got subclinical hypothyroidism before they begin. Um, and I've certainly had a number of patients who've got known Graves disease before they begin. So knowing their, their autoantibody status at that point is quite useful. So if I've got an abnormal thyroid function prior to treatment, then I will do autoantibodies. If I've got somebody who develops or a thyroid um, issues, either hypo or hypothyroidism um, in a thyroiditis type setting secondary to their immunotherapy, I have done a piece of research looking at what autoantibodies are expressed. And what you find is that about 50% of people get autoantibodies expressed. Some of them can get all of the autoantibodies expressed, which makes little sense clinically because that shouldn't really be happening. And probably what's happening is the thyroid gland's been so um, sort of disrupted that then, then it's sort of available for the immune system to start building building some autoantibodies against. Because certainly some people can have them all, the majority of people don't have any. And then even if they have got autoantibodies, that are in keeping with the direction of travel, um, they don't really change your management particularly. So I've actually stopped doing thyroid autoantibodies unless I've got a specific reason to, because I think actually they don't help your clinical practice. They don't really change the outcome of the of the the, the process. The one group I do do is the, is those that have got something at the beginning, because that's probably a more likely to be an autoantibody driven process. Um, whereas actually the thyroid toxicity that we see is probably not really related to autoantibodies. And I think they just confuse the picture and confuse us as, as people in, interpreting it. But I don't know if that's what you do. Yeah, so that's definitely how we've moved, partly because we were doing lots of autoantibodies that we didn't know how to interpret. Um, and and exactly as you say, you know, so th th a really nice group that you've just brought up and, and we've had a couple of patients recently that were referred to the toxicity service for advice. And those patients who've got Graves disease and in particular Graves eye disease and, and, and starting immunotherapy in those patients. Now, accepting that you know, guidance will be very slim, if at all, on, on this kind of issue. Have you had experience of grave eye disease and patients start in immunotherapy? And, and, you know, what would be the messages for those who are maybe in this space for the first time, have got a patient with graves, want to start the immunotherapy? Do they need to speak to an ophthalmologist in your view? Do they need to speak to an endocrinologist? Are there anything that they need to be thinking about before they start? So they are a bit of a complex group, actually. They're, they're quite a small group, but they are a complex group. So I think there's two things for me. One is that they will probably be on carbimazole. They will probably be on some form of treatment. And I think the message is don't stop it. Um, and certainly I have not not in our service, but certainly spoken to colleagues who they have stopped it because, it, you know, because when they are then um, have abnormal thyroid function tests and they're on carbimazole when they're having their immunotherapy and goes, oh, you don't need that. So really important not to stop their existing treatment. Um, normally they will have an endocrinologist. So I tend to um, liaise with them to say we are starting. And the reason I do that is I have what we do see is destabilisation of their control for their graves. So I've certainly had two patients who have had pre-existing Graves disease who have had 
took me with immunotherapy who's had then then their thyroid control has has gone awry so it's actually relatively easy to to sort out but it is really important to do that with with their endocrinologist who's been looking after them for years so I do tend to have that conversation before treating them that said I've never not given immunotherapy for uh, in 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 patients that have got Graves disease I just think it's just a bit of a, a case of keeping an eye on them and I think the other thing that I suggest is either to their team or in in my case sometimes the immunotherapy team will do this but actually to try keep quite a close eye on them so to sort of make sure they've not got worsening eye signs to make sure they've not got worsening um neck neck symptoms because actually those those do seem to happen with the the graves um group in a way that doesn't tend to happen with anybody else but the other thing in the as we're moving more into adjuvant and neoadjuvant settings trying to understand what the risk to them and sort of the longer term risk to them if you give them immunotherapy I don't think there's an answer to that at the moment. We don't know. But I think it's an important group for us to keep an eye on. And certainly, I was talking to a colleague of mine when she's she was talking to a patient about neoadjuvant immunotherapy for breast cancer. So a young, young 32-year-old lady who um, has got Graves' disease. And um, and then we were very much talking about, you know, where are the risk benefits? Does this put her at more risk of having other toxicities? What does the chemo IO combination look like in terms of pre-existing autoimmune disease? So and at the moment, it's very much a, a pragmatic response of, you know, and that, so in her, I actually checked what her autoantibodies were. Where was she up to in terms of her activity of a disease and then spoke to her endocrinologist? And she has decided to go ahead with treatment. But it's just an important group to actually, you know, where how are we going to manage this? particularly in the new adjuvant setting where we really can't, we, we really don't want to get to a point where they miss surgery. Um, we're having to sort of think about this quite proactively. So I think talking to the teams that are looking after them sort of early, as early as possible is really, is really important so that there's no delays when something goes, goes slightly awry and you, you have to make some decisions about how to manage things. So I think they are totally manageable um, and absolutely would give immunotherapy to this patient group. But I think they do need to need a bit of extra thinking about, partly because some of the endocrinologists that look after them won't have necessarily seen our patients and the immunotherapy effects. Yeah, great. And and then just to just to finish um, on this topic, I think it, it, just a, a quick reminder for the audience that that a little bit like um, hyperadrenalism and and long term hydrocortisone, my experience Anna with with hypothyroidism is that these patients will normally need lifelong levothyroxine. Um, is that been your experience? Have you ever seen the thyroid function recover? So. That's interesting. So, so no, actually. So when so the, the group that I have seen um, that have recovered are I've had a couple of patients in all of the patients I've treated. So it's a very small number. I want to sort of emphasize that point um, that have had hyperthyroid that have become euthyroid and then have not become hypothyroid. So I have had a few hyperthyroid patients who have then then normalized. Um, I don't I can't recall a single case of somebody who's become hypothyroid that has recovered. So I think once they get into that hyperthyroid phase, they're sort of that's that's where they're going to be, which is partly why when I'm interpreting blood tests and their thyroid is deteriorating in terms of the functionality, I don't tend to wait until it's got really low before I start replacement. I will always make sure that I've not got a patient who I'm worried has got sick euthyroid who's unwell for other reasons and their thyroid function has become deranged because of that. So if somebody's unwell, you have to be quite careful in how you how you interpret thyroid function. So I would always say repeat it before you replace it but if you've got somebody who's trending down because I've never seen anybody recover I would start thyroid replacement you know once they're sort of in the sort of eight to nine area I would start thinking about replacing rather than waiting to get down to the sort of five or six 
T4 over five or six because actually I've never seen them recover and then I don't want to risk them getting symptomatic when they're when they're clinically well. I do think though the big point of this that really raises is the fact that it's so important when we're consenting patients to warn them that this is a possibility and the fact that it's irreversible it's obviously really important for us to do that once it's happened so that they know that they're going to be on lifelong replacement but I think there are a few things that catch um, patients at unawares and they find really really quite challenging and so long-term replacement for any endocrinopathy is something that we see quite commonly and I think because from an oncology perspective we manage it and we might carry on and we actually carry on with their treatment it feels a relatively minor thing I think in terms of the broad spectrum of side effects that we see and obviously we can see some very scary things so this actually feels quite manageable but from a patient perspective it's hugely impactful because they're going to take tablets for the rest of their lives and if they're in you know if they're a good you know if they have a good response to treatment or they're adjuvant patients that's a that's quite a significant impact long term so I think it's really important that we we counsel quite heavily about the fact that this might be a possibility and actually just going back to the cortisol conversation I do that if somebody's going to be on long-term steroids I do sometimes say you may need to end up having replacement for this even if it's as a result of your steroid treatment as opposed to being as a result of your your immunotherapy and actually we've now put it in our immunotherapy leaflet that these things can be long-term so that patients are fully aware and it just feels that they find it easier to to sort of come to terms with if they're pre-warned before it happens so I would really advocate for that conversation I mean I'm sure you can imagine I spend quite a lot of time going through quite a lot of side effects when I'm consenting patients for immunotherapy I think my, my path has got longer not shorter um but actually it's one of the things I really focus on because I think it's important that they take that on board when they're when they're consenting for treatment I don't know if you do the same yeah no so Anna I've been burnt in exactly the same way because you, you're focusing on colitis and pneumonitis and you know the life-threatening toxicities but actually the the, the the not the complaints I've had but the pushback I've had from patients is oh I don't think I really realized I'd be on this for the rest of my life um, and so and again I think you know I've I've found in the past that I focus on you know the estimated maybe one in 500 who might develop type 1 diabetes because again in my mind that's the game changer but actually for patients who for lifelong will need to be on any replacement it's it's just so important um, and and they're often and I, and I remember sitting in clinic thinking you know I don't know why this is such a big deal but actually we have to remember we're not the patient you know we're, we're the ones who have, in essence, potentially caused the side effect. And so it's really important, as you say, not just to focus on the things that worry us, but think about the impact that taking tablets every day will have on that individual. So, Anna, on that note, I'll bring this one to a close. Thank you so much uh, for that conversation, that chat. Uh, I look forward to seeing you again next time.